Hi, and welcome to this week's LGBT Wellness Podcast. Each week, LGBT HealthLink, a program of Centerlink, brings you a roundup of some of the biggest LGBTQ wellness stories from the past week. Get ready to listen and learn lots. Hi, everyone. This is Corey. Welcome to another week of our LGBT Wellness Roundup. As always, if any of the stories that we're about to discuss are of interest and you'd like to read them uh, in full form, you can head over to blog.lgbthealthlink.org where you will find uh, links to all of the stories for today's roundup and all of our previous roundups. Let's jump in with the first story of the week, Healthcare Diversity Problems Starts in Med School. A new study led by Catherine Hill found that among 27,000 medical students who were included in the study, sexual minorities were much more likely to report at least one incident of mistreatment in medical school when compared to their heterosexual peers. The study found specifically that 43.5% of LGB students had faced such mistreatment while in medical school, and that's compared to 23.6% of heterosexual students. So almost double the likelihood um, of sexual minority students um, having at least one incident where they said that they were mistreated while in medical school compared to heterosexual peers. They also found in the study that female students and students of color face disparities as well. So that's interesting when we think about the LGBT community not being, you know, just one uh, uniform group. Um, Actually, you know, a lot of numbers show that there are more female identified LGBT folks than there are male identified folks. So that disparity, um, you know, combined with the the disparity among female students is important. And of course, we know that LGBT folks um, of color face a lot of uh, disparities and issues and intersectional discrimination. So that's very concerning as well to see both of those groups reporting um, higher levels of mistreatment. And of course, uh, you know, this overall, I think, is really important because one of the big problems in accessing LGBT competent care is that there are not enough LGBT providers out there who are able to serve the population and also help educate non-LGBT providers to be more affirming and competent. So the fact that these students are facing this kind of discouragement um, and problems in medical school um, is a big issue. In our next story, a growing movement targets conversion therapy. Reuters reported on a growing movement to end the practice uh, known as conversion therapy um, at the national level, both in the U.S. and in other countries. They say that uh, survivors of so-called conversion therapy are playing a leading role in this movement by sharing their stories about the type of mistreatment um, they received by, you know, healthcare providers and others trying to get them to change their sexual orientation or gender identity. I was surprised to learn in this story that only three countries across the world have totally banned the practice on a national level. Here in the U.S., 19 states have placed limits on it, such as preventing it from uh, from uh, being done on minors. Um, but they've still allowed adults who are consenting to receive the treatment, at least under some circumstances. Next up, cancer screening disparities for people of color. 
A Canadian study led by Jennifer Gillis found that men living with HIV face disparities in anal cancer screening along racial and ethnic lines. So this wasn't specifically um, regarding men who have sex with men, you know, queer men, but it was um, men living with HIV of whom we know a, a huge percent are, um, are gay, bi, and queer men. So they found that compared to white men living with HIV, Asian men were less likely to have discussed getting screened with their provider for anal cancer. Meanwhile, African, Caribbean, and Black men were less likely to have received digital anorectal exams compared to their white peers. The author said that this could lead to a disparate burden of anal cancer among men of color living with HIV. So we know that men of color are already disproportionately impacted by HIV. This is an example of how those disparities are compounded because they're not, you know, receiving the same level and quality of care um, after being diagnosed with HIV as are their white peers. Our next story looks at Addressing Social Isolation Among Older LGBT Adults The National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine reported that LGBT older adults may be at particular risk for social isolation. They also say that while there are likely interventions that serve minority populations, including LGBT older adults and people of color, there has been little study on this topic, and so providers are currently lacking the data that they need in order to most effectively address disparities. One study found that having access to a companion animal meant higher uh, perceived social and emotional support among LGBT older adults, which I thought was a great example of an intervention, Um, more of a, you know, I don't know, a novel one, an unusual, unexpected one, Um, and an example of research, you know, focusing particularly on what's going to help LGBT older adults who we know have uh, less of a social network, they're less likely to be married, they're less likely to have children, um, and they really need that, that social and emotional support. Next up, $117 million awarded in HIV fight. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services announced that over $117 million had been awarded as part of its effort to end the HIV epidemic. And um, the awards were focused, as is the the Ending the HIV Epidemic Plan in general, on specific counties, cities, and states that are facing disproportionate rates of the virus. Awardees included 195 health centers, as well as 60 Ryan White programs, and they will focus on prevention, testing, and PrEP access. And finally for this week, supportive communities see less substance use. Researchers led by Ryan Watson found that in British Columbia, sexual minority youth who lived in communities that were more supportive of LGBT people were less likely to use illicit drugs, with sexual minority girls also being less likely in those supportive communities to smoke or to use marijuana. On the whole, sexual minority youth in places with more LGBT events had lower odds of substance use, suggesting that this could be a protective factor. I think this is a a really great study because we know um, kind of intuitively and, you know, speaking personally as a member of the community, that when we live in a more supportive community with more going on for LGBT people besides, you know, just bars and clubs and, and that kind of thing, that we have a healthier community. And so it's great to see some research that supports it. It really makes me think about the role that LGBT centers, for example, and other LGBT local organizations can play on advancing health, not just in 
specific interventions that they offer or programs that they offer, but just by being there and by being a space where people can connect, they can um, work through issues in a, in a healthy way um, and find that sense of community. Well, that does it for another edition of our LGBT Wellness Roundup. I hope that you've enjoyed listening. If any of the stories piqued your interest and you'd like to check them out for yourselves, just go to blog.lgbthealthlink.org where you'll find the written version of the Roundup with all of the links that you need. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast if you're not already, and I hope you'll tune in next week.